All right, well, let's just talk about, I just want to talk about, um, you know, why love addiction, why now? And this book, Making Advances, as Douglas said, um, we came together, I think, around 2010. It was actually published in 2012. Um, and I was invited to, at the time, Life Healing Center to join this women's summit. And the women that were sort of running the thing were luminaries in the field of sex and love addiction female love addiction, Marnie Furry being one of them, who wrote a book called No Stones. And she was one of the first female sex addicts to come out and say, hey, I'm a sex addict. She's a faith-based woman. She runs Bethesda workshops um, in, I think it's Tennessee, or I don't remember exactly where it is. Yeah, I think it's Tennessee, yeah. Do you know, Jessica? OK. Um, anyway, former past president of um, you know, SASH and people of that nature, women, yes? Covering. <laughs> Sorry, Galen. Okay. The AV pros told me. Yeah, get rid of the scar. Okay. So at this summit at Life Healing Center, where all these women gathered, we started to have a conversation about why isn't anybody talking about female sex and love addiction. Um, and then we gathered again, and a few of us said, hey, why don't we write a book? And that's how this book came to pass. And what was 24 women whittled down to about 10. We met several times throughout the country. And this book is an incredibly well-researched book. So if you want to know how to start a group, how to really work with women, and how it's different than working with men, this book is an extraordinary guide. And I think this book time is just now coming. Because we're starting to hear about love addiction more in the media. Uh, more females are identifying as love addicts and less as sex addicts. Because you'll see that they are flip sides of the same coin. Um, and there just seems to be a buzz now about love addiction in the way there wasn't. So keep in mind that in 1976, Broad and Peel wrote the first academic paper on love addiction. And it wasn't until 1986 that SLAA, Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, came out with their big book. So there was a 10-year gap between when it was first sort of being identified professionally and when the 12-step fellowship uh, followed suit with the definition of it and the recognition of it. So this quote says, addiction begins with the hope that something, quote, out there can instantly fill up the emptiness inside. And I think that is actually an, a definition of all addiction. But we see this a lot with female love addicts. There is a profound lack of self, um, a lack of sense of who I am, and an inability to feel in my own body. And this is from um, Ethley Ann Baer's book. A love addict, she says, addiction starts in the most primitive parts of the brain, in our lizard brains. That drink or that drug or that date feels like survival. To the love addict, love really is like oxygen. So there's a desperation in the way that she talks about this. This is a very funny book. She's a very smart writer. Um, she's a journalist and a recovering SLA herself. Um, and it's just called Love Addict, if you uh, want to take a look at that book. So love addiction is an intimacy disorder. And a lot of these phrases you've heard before with sex addiction also. And nobody really defines intimacy disorder. It's not in the DSM. But it's an attachment injury. So it's not necessarily characterological, but it is an injury to the very self. So much so that these self-states are sequestered or they're segregated in uh, very compartmentalized, highly dissociative ways. 
It's an attachment problem. It's a regulatory problem because all attachment problems are regulatory problems. It's a neurochemically altered state and it involves trauma repetition. So I was talking to um, someone this morning about this professional person about <clears throat> how love addiction is a syndrome the way sex addiction is. It's not in the DSM, it's not a diagnosis. But it's much easier for someone to come into therapy and say, I'm a love addict. No one's going to come in and say, I'm borderline, right? <laughs> People don't say that ever. Uh, but they'll tell you that they're love addicted. Um, just like a narcissist won't say, hi, I'm a narcissist. But they'll say, you think I'm hypersexual or have a sex addiction. Um, so there's always, there are characterological slash regulatory issues driving the whole thing. But these words that are now commonly in the lexicon represent a syndrome or a constellation of behaviors. So there's craving of intimacy and connection, a deep, deep craving for that, and an inability to establish or maintain intimacy. So um, it's a one-person system. It's auto-regulatory, meaning I don't look to another person to regulate me and get my needs met in a co-regulatory proposition. Um, it can feel co like a two-person system, but it's really not. It's all about me, 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 and what I want and what I need, and I can never get enough. Um, and if I can't get you the way I want you, I will construct you in a fantasy so that you fill what I need to obsession. And obsession is a left brain construct. It's a sticky left brain, and it's in service of not having to feel what's on the right and down into the body. Because if the obsession stopped, then I'd really have to fall into this abyss of nothingness, this pain, this dreaded loneliness is the way that people will talk about it. Um, and this lack of sense of self. They're unable to tolerate what intimacy actually requires because intimacy is a two-person system. Um, I have to be interested in you. I have to tolerate your upset and anger without making it about me. I have to be able to soothe you when you're upset and angry even though I'm activated because I'm feeling my avoidance has me wanting to pull away because I'm reading it as dangerous when it's not about me. So to be in relationship, to be in a deeply intimate relationship um, is probably the highest form of mental health, I think. When we can love another human being deeply in a contingent way, in a co-regulatory, secure way, that is a sign of mental health. So people who struggle with love addiction cannot recognize their feelings, as I said, and their needs because they can't, they can't feel what's in their body. We see a lot of alexithymia, a lot of limpness in the autonomic system. They don't know how to ask to get needs met. So if you can't recognize them, you certainly can't ask for what you want to need. And they're easily wounded, very, very fragile internally, a lot of misappropriation. Um, thinking that, well, I think he wants me, or I think he likes me, or why are you so angry at me, when none of those things are true and it's not what's actually happening. And there's no compass for how to check it out either. And so the way this can play out in therapy is that you can think the therapy is going along swimmingly uh, because there's an adaptive strategy on this side um, where that person's adapted towards people-pleasing or looking good, it's a huge part of sex and love addiction, um, when in effect, um, that's not what's going on at all. So you have to be able to really track your own somatic cues and trust your own intuition clinically 
um, to pay attention to what's actually happening dietically because you're not going to get that from the person opposite you in an explicit way. Um, they can't tolerate true vulnerability, so there's a pseudo-vulnerability, and that can come in the form of weepiness or incredible drama all the time. Um, but true vulnerability, as you know, means really getting honest about what's actually going on uh, internally and what is true and what's most humiliating or embarrassing to talk about. And they're overly focused on others to their own detriment. Um, and that, again, is all a strategy for not having to be here, because here was erased early on, or as Philip Bromberg says, the self gets translated out of existence. So there's no self there. Um, and so it's all about managing you so that I'm okay. And that's clearly one of the definitions of a trauma survivor. Um, you know, I think codependency is a traumatic adaptive strategy. That's what it is. If I track you and I make sure you're okay and I take care of you, then I therefore will be okay because I'm managing your volatility uh, or your depression or your anxiety or your alcoholism or whatever. And traits and features we see of dependent personality disorder, narcissistic PD, and borderline PD. Um, all of those things will be on the spectrum depending on the person. And always sex and love addicts substitute intensity for intimacy. They consider intensity as passion. You know, it's so intense, it's so passionate. Um, and they keep driving that um, all the time regardless of what's happening in reality. You know, he doesn't call me back, but that's okay because he must have been working late. Um, he said he was going to pick me up and he was two hours late and said his car broke down, but that's okay. He's such a great guy. Um, you know, he was supposed to show up and meet my friends or my mother and he just blew me off. Um, you know, well, he didn't feel good. You know, there's always, you know, a desire to elevate the ideas that the person has about the other versus the actuality of what's going on. So any questions as I go along here? And if you do have questions, please ask them so that it's not waiting till the end. No? So love addicts tend to form insecure and anxious attachments. Um, so it's important to remember that the anxious, um, ambivalent, or preoccupied, the anxious avoidant are organized insecure patterns of relatedness. So most people that we see are organized and insecure. The borderline's really the disorganized. And if you can move a disorganized to insecure, you've done a monumental piece of work over time because people who really have borderline personality are not likely ever going to have a secure attachment. Um, at best, they will be more organized but insecure. Um, but insecures can earn secure attachment through therapy and through solid love relationships. Obsessive relational activity becomes the means of regulating feelings, as I said before. So if I can spin into obsession, if I can track you on social media, if I can check out pictures on Instagram, all of that is soothing me to know that somehow I'm okay and I'm not going to be abandoned. But the slightest movement, um, like, oh, there was a woman's shoulder in that photo, and who was that person? Um, you know, it wasn't a stranger, it was somebody else that creates this rapid cycling of abandonment, rejection, fear, 
um, and, and all of the things that go with these insecure and disorganized attachment styles. Um, so this is a profound inability to self-soothe and not knowing that I could call a friend or I could go for a walk with my dog um, or I could do something in community with other people to get my needs met because, you know, people that are damaged in this way learn early on that no one's actually going to meet their needs, that they're on their own, they've got to figure it out themselves. Um, and so that's one of the biggest, you know, learning curves for people in recovery, regardless of what their addiction is, is that they can actually rely on other human beings to get their needs met. And it's challenging because other human beings were initially dangerous. And so the right amygdala will continue to read danger regardless of what's actually happening in reality. Um, so threat detection is always on high alert. Anger, sadness, pain, loneliness, fear, and threat responses all become romanticized. Um, so as I said, it doesn't matter what's going on. Um, the love addict will always push the fantasy up into the love addicted realm um, and make it all okay. And um, they become romanticized and sometimes they become sexualized also. That's a common part of it. So this is, we could say love addiction is trauma repetition also. There's early relational trauma. And early relational trauma is really infancy, the final trimester through four years. So I'm talking here about um, unrepaired micro-assaults. So the child is crying. It doesn't get contingent response from the caregiver. It isn't soothed when it's upset. Um, when the infant has these spikes of dysregulation, it's the caregiver's job to downregulate that high sympathetic arousal because it's building both structure in the central and autonomic nervous system and function of those structures and systems. And so the mother, primarily caregiver, is required to keep building resilience in this system. So it has a higher capacity or higher window of tolerance if you're familiar with Dan Siegel and Pat Ogden's work. Um, you want to stretch that. The mother wants to keep stretching that appropriately so that the infant and then child can continue to tolerate more novelty. You're building novelty in the system. Um, and when that novelty isn't appropriately regulated along the lines, you're going to have problems, namely dissociation. Um, and that is what creates all psychopathology. I mean, Russell Mears talks about borderline personality disorder as a dissociative disorder. Um, and that, if you work with that population, that's, it's a really beautiful book and worth a read. So later childhood traumas, I mean, historically, we've thought of trauma as childhood trauma. Well, they were beat or emotionally abused or dad was alcoholic. But the literature's pointing way, way back pre-even childhood. Because if a child has trauma in childhood and they were securely attended to from infancy through those first four years, they're going to be a lot more resilient with that trauma than if they didn't have those structures to begin with. Um, and when we have women come in here that are 18, 20 years old, and they've already been heroin addicts, raped multiple times, um, are into autoerotic asphyxiation with strangers, um, and things of that nature, I can tell you right now, this did not go well in the early years. Um, and so this is not about, you know, mother blaming, but it, there is a reality here. These are evolutionary directives for what human beings need in order to come up and so that they're functioning um, optimally. So 
we see abandonment in these later traumas. Um, there's a disappearance or loss of a relationship. So profoundly, a mother or father, a mother dies. I mean, I've heard this story more than one time, and you probably have too, where uh, there's a mother who's sick. She's dying of cancer or something. The children aren't told, and one day she dies. And they take the children aside and say, mommy died, and then that's the end of it. Uh, we had two cases here just this year like that. Um, and it's just, you know, it's beyond comprehension of what that does to a child. You talk about pathological dissociation, there it is. An extraordinary attachment loss. Um, sometimes it's less dramatic than that. But, you know, plenty of people, two years old, my father took off. I never saw him again. Or my mother, you know, remarried and he was abusive. Or who knows what the stories are. Um, but... This is a breach to the attachment system here. And Pia Melody asserts that if a female is love addicted to males, it's because her father abandoned her early on. Um, and if she's enmeshed, then she's going to be avoidant. Um, so if the father was enmeshing of the daughter, she's going to be avoidant of men. She'll be more on the sex addicted you know, end of the continuum. Um, and sex addiction and love addiction are often opposite sides of the same coin. So sex addicts are usually more avoidant, and the love addicts, um, you know, have been abandoned. Because a lot of male sex addicts feel smothered by women. You've all heard that before, right? Because they were enmeshed by their mothers. And their sexual adequacy was really, you know, decimated on some level. Rejection is also what we see. And of course, abandonment usually aligns up with the borderline constellation rejection with the narcissistic one. Uh, there's a disappearance or loss of a relationship due to real or perceived shortcomings. So sometimes, you know, the parents are there and they stay, but their level of criticism is so unbelievably atrocious that the child feels chronically rejected. We can take a look at what happened with the dean of the UCSC Medical School this week, right? Uh, this is a Harvard graduate medical doctor who's found with a 22-year-old prostitute who overdosed this week in a hotel room and photographs of him taking ecstasy and partying, 66 years old. Now, what would happen to a man of this stature that he would be doing that at this time? And what I make up about that is that there was incredibly profound emotional neglect in his household. And that doesn't mean he wasn't fed. He didn't have a roof over his head. His parents weren't educated and nice people. But you can imagine it was a cold household. And that in order for him to be loved, validated, noticed, he had to achieve. Um, he had to get all the way to Harvard and all the way to the dean of the USC Medical School. And he still wasn't good enough. Um, and then, as I said, enmeshment is when someone else's emotional needs are taking precedent over the child's. Um, time and time again, we hear these stories where, you know, the mother, you know, makes the boy her surrogate spouse by way of, you know, crying, talking about her desperation, her problems. Um, she uses the boy to get her needs met in a way that, again, squashes his sexual adequacy and will have him acting out in very rageful ways sexually with women. But he doesn't see them as rageful. Um, and then there's a betrayal bond that happens also. Female sex and love addicts will often bond with males who are going to betray them, who are going to hurt them. Because that's the amount of intimacy they can tolerate. Yeah? I have a question. Sure. Would, um, 
If you're abandoned, you're going to yeah. be love addicted. Okay. And if you're enmeshed, you're going to be love avoidant. Okay, and it doesn't matter what the gender is. If, you're, if the mother is enmeshing the daughter, that female may be avoidant of other women, not trust other women. Um, so one definition here is the repeated compulsive seeking of a relationship or romantic experience despite negative consequences. And a love addict is dependent on and meshed with and compulsively focused on another person. That's another definition by PF. Love addicts assign a disproportionate amount of time, attention, and value above themselves to the person whom they are addicted, what's known as a qualifier in the SLA room. So somebody who qualifies me as being a love addict would be the person I can't stay away from even though he's married and he treats me poorly, etc. Um, and this focus has an obsessive quality to it. And love addicts have unrealistic expectations for feeling love from the other person in the relationships. They're a bottomless pit. And they neglect to care for themselves while they're in, um, are in or recovering from the relationship. Um, so they will drop everything to go to that person, even though, um, let's say I have a dental appointment on Monday at noon, and the guy calls on Sunday night or Monday morning and says, hey, you want to hook up at noon? I say, yeah. And I blow off my dentist and my teeth and everything else. So there's a boundarylessness that we see with females in service of males. Now, I'm well aware that I'm speaking from a very um, heterosexual point of view here. I think this differs with lesbian women because um, a number of factors um, so it's different because females and how they relate to each other is different than the female-male configuration. Um, so these are, there are different iterations of this, and it's not a one-size-fits-all problem. It depends on the person sitting in front of you. Um, so you have to be more investigative than I am. These are broad strokes. Love addicts experience love as all-consuming and obsessive. Um, love is inhibited because they're not really in love with the other. It's a, that's a one-person system. It's about, I need to feel that dopamine surge. I need to be in a romantic fantasy about who you are to me. I don't really know you, and I don't really see you. And when I have glimpses of that, I don't want to see that, because that kind of breaks the fantasy of how I need you to be. Um, does anybody remember Diane Weist in that Woody Allen movie, when she was with that young man? And the, the line was, don't speak. <laughs> do, do, you remember, do you remember that movie? I don't remember which one it was, but she would say to him, don't speak. And he was much younger than her, and she just needed him to be this beautiful sex object. But the minute he opened his mouth, she just couldn't tolerate it because then he became a person. Um, they avoid risk or change, so it's a very rigid. Um, there's a, a lack of true intimacy. It's manipulative. It strikes deal. There are ultimatums in this configuration. Um, it's very dependent and very parasitic, and it demands the loved one's devotion. It demands to be aggrandized and treated like a goddess and worshipped and all of that. So it really is the stuff of fairy tales, um, of very childish fairy tales. And um, I'll tell you, I've never met a love addict who didn't have a rescue fantasy. And if you ask them when they were children what happened, how did they take care of themselves. You'll find out that they played in their rooms alone a lot. 
Um, men will tell you they were into comics, um, or they drew endlessly, quietly. Um, this whole fantasy that someday my prince will come and I'll be rescued, I mean, this gets perpetrated in the you know, Princess Cinderella story. Um, but males also have a sense that somebody's gonna come get them, and of course nobody ever does. But it carries on into adulthood. Some of the hallmarks are instant best friends and relationships, so there's a compulsive attachment. Um, lighting up when rapport is established. This is compensatory for mood disorders or dissociative defenses. So when somebody is sort of dysthymic or dead at the core, which is even more extreme than dysthymia, um, and they don't have a robust sense of self or joy or feelings in the body, they're constantly trying to lift themselves up out of the deadness. This is one of the things that pornography does. Um, and because it, it's this high novelty, high dopamine surge, and if you already have low dopamine tone or you've got difficulty with depression and anxiety, you can never get enough of that cycling dopamine. And that's why a fraction of the population becomes addicted to internet for porn. Likewise, this is a seeking, it's a mood-altering experience with another. Obsessively focusing on another person is a defense against these dissociated affective states. And when I talk about dissociation, I'm talking about compartmentalization, um, at which are unconscious um, self-states that are no, not available, and dissociated rage, terror, panic, grief, um, not all of it, but some of it in each person that they're not even aware of. Um, there are plenty of people that walk around in functional freeze states, as they say in SE. So they're hypo-aroused. Um, there's anxiety underneath that that you would never see, and they make it through life, but they're kind of dead. There's a deadness in the eyes. They don't really feel much of anything. Um, but boy, do they seek that intensity through you know, love and sex and other people. There's a racing to intimacy born out of an anxiety and an attempt to regulate. So I had a male love addict uh, who was gay years ago say to me, you know, on the first date, I'm picking out the wedding china. Um, and it's like, that's a bad sign <laughs> because you're not really with the person. You're in love with the china and the idea of what this person might bring you. Uh, there's caretaking, rescuing behaviors, uh, which are regulatory behaviors in a one-person system. So I'll often ask females, you know, how do you know whether this is a good person for you or not? Is this person stable? Do they, are they gainfully employed? Do they show up? Do they return your phone calls? Are you interested? Um, or is it a fixer-upper? Because a lot of times females will end up with these fixer-uppers, especially if they're overachieving females who are also victims. So they were parentified in their family of origin. They're the you know, studio executives that can run the show, uh, but they can't take care of themselves. And they'll you know, end up with some guy who was working in their yard, or they met at a gym, or something like that. That's not really their equal on multiple levels, but they'll caretake to that person uh, because they're so efficient at getting things done. Um, so that's one configuration that you would see. Um, there is a tendency towards enmeshment and losing interest when the excitement, newness, intensity, or novelty, as it were, um, wears off. So there's compulsive detachment and cycling through relationships. Um, Charlotte Castle, in her book, uh, Women, Sex, and Addiction, which I think came out in the 80s, talked about women as being sexually codependent. And I really like that phrase better than sexually addicted because I think women have sex for love um, more often than not. Um, 
That said, we do see female sex addicts here that are just out for the kill in some of the ways that the men are. They don't want any kind of connection afterwards. It's just about getting off. Um, they don't like men. They wield power and control over men. But more often than not, it's more the traditional submissive female sort of activity. And of course, the fear of rejection and abandonment. So here are some symptoms. The person gets high from romance, fantasy, or intrigue. And they respond to the fantasy as if it were reality. So they're kind of living in la-la land. Um, they feel desperate or uneasy when they're away from the lover or sexual partner. So now more than ever, people can check on people with GPS, um, with social media, as I said before, breaking into email accounts to read what's going on. Sounds exhausting, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't want to know where you are during the day. <laughs> But you'd be surprised the epic proportions people go to. Um, and all of it is in service of their own regulation. Um, they can't trust in relationships. So even if they do pick someone who's, quote, a good person or a good guy or good woman, they will inevitably create this self-fulfilling prophecy because they get so paranoid and scared that they become cloying to the extent that the other person just doesn't want to be with them. Um, they believe that a relationship will make life bearable, and it does temporarily until that person ultimately fails them. Uh, they're unable to stop seeing a specific person, even though that person's destructive to their well-being, and this is when it becomes more of a trauma bond. And they have difficulty being alone. Uh, being alone is often accompanied by alcohol or just this, as I said, deadness, boredom, loneliness profoundly. And that's where people can get into all kinds of trouble. And of course, today more than ever now, there are opportunities for women to prostitute themselves through escort services, through this whole sugar baby movement. Um, and that's not even officially prostitution, but it's sex for you know goods and services and prizes. Um, so there's not money being exchanged per se, but uh, the young female gets together with the older male. And like this dean, he was 66, she was 22. Um, and she had prostituted herself for a period of time. Um, but these young women get to go to super expensive restaurants and get to buy really nice clothes and shoes that they can't afford. And all they have to do is show up and be cute and pretty and have sex with them. And they know that that's the financial agreement up front. Sometimes they can get a car out of it or their rent paid. But it's, um, it's like a quasi-sex worker relationship. So you all are aware that this is going on. And yeah, it's going on pretty heartily, actually. Um, and so that's why this matter of loneliness used to be, well, I'm just going to be lonely at home in my apartment on a Saturday night. And then it moved to, well, I'm going to cruise Craigslist and see if I can hook up with someone. But now there are bigger opportunities that if I'm going to hook up with someone, I may as well get some clothes out of it and some shoes um, or money, ultimately. So the whole, our whole culture is now setting this up and perpetuating it. Confusing wants and desires and need. Most of these women don't know what they feel, much less what they need or what they want. And they usually go in that order. They feel like life uh, would have little or no meaning without a love relationship. Replacing ended relationships, uh, replacing ended relationships immediately. So always being in another relationship. 
having relationships to try to deal with or escape from life's problems, and flirting with or sexualizing someone even when the person doesn't mean to. So not even aware of how they're comporting themselves and putting themselves out in the world. Um, we have females who come here sometimes and they're sitting in our waiting room and they come in and I think, oh my gosh, they're not even, it's not even on their radar that there are male sex addicts here. Super short shorts, you know, dress, clothes hanging off their shoulders, like all this flesh revealed in a way where they're just like, well, this is who I am, or, you know, it's 100 degrees outside. And it's like, yeah, it's 100 degrees outside and what are, what are you saying with your body and with your sexuality? So their sexuality is just leaking out everywhere. They don't have ownership of it. Um, it's the commodity with which they feel, uh, through which they feel valued, uh, because there is no self there. So they're impulsive. They make uh, assumptions about the intentions of others. They compulsively connect and disconnect. As I say, they obsess and overanalyze fantasize, dis deny reality. There are lots of thought distortions here. And so, of course, these are all um, treatment issues when you start to dismantle the distorted thinking. Um, they make decisions uh, and act on skewed perceptions. There's codependency, as I said, rescuing behaviors, poor boundaries, and they attach to inappropriate or dangerous people. Um, okay, so this is the love addiction cycle, which I think is a helpful cycle to look at. So the first is responsive to the seductiveness and power of the other person, and they enter the relationship in fantasy. And this is a really, again, this is kind of an intervention tool if somebody is starting to date again to say, well, what are you really responding to? What do you like about this person? And that's a very interesting question because oftentimes they don't know what they like about the person, so the answer they'll give you is about what the person has or what they do. Uh, but there'll be like words peppered in there like they're nice or they're friendly. Um, but they don't really know who this person is they're getting relationship with because they don't know themselves. Um, the second is they deny the partner's unavailability and they're high on the fantasy, as I said before. So there will be excuses made for why that person isn't as available as they should be. And it works perfectly for somebody who is avoidant or insecure um, because they can only choose, we can only choose someone who is as available as we are. Um, we don't choose people by accident. Uh, oftentimes, we think we're much more um, securely attached or intimate than our partners are, which is not the truth. Um, so um, there's temporary relief from the pain of emotional deadness and loneliness, as I've been talking about. And they become overwhelming needy, and they deny the reality of the other person's unavailability. So first here, they're high on the fantasy, but then um, as the person is increasingly, they're, they're aware that they're increasingly unavailable, or they're seeing the unavailability, they continue to deny that more and more and more. <clears throat> and then there's an experience that shatters the denial or fantasy. Usually, it's they find out they're dating someone else or you're not having sex with me because you're looking at excessive pornography, or um, you want to see other people, but some, there's some crack in the veneer. And at that moment, the person enters emotional withdrawal from the fantasy. And they can be in excruciating pain because of the loss there. But that leads to a preoccupation with how to restore the relationship or retaliate, one of the two. So how am I going to fix this? 
<clears throat> How am I going to make it okay? What am I going to overlook? I'll act like that didn't happen, or we'll have a big fight and a blow up, and then we'll have great makeup sex, and now everything's fine because I've restored the order of things in the way I need them to be. Um, or retaliation, which tells us a little bit more about who this person is. That's when it can get dangerous, and this is when um, love addicts can start to move into stalking. Um, and more dangerous behaviors. And we've all heard stories of that both in the media and um, I had a client myself a couple years ago who uh, had a female stalking him and she was destroying his life. She ended up in jail, which is not easy because most of these people don't. It's very hard to press charges and catch them, but the number of voice messages, the number of times that she infiltrated Facebook um, calling his ex-wife, threatening his children, and she lived out of state. I mean, it was terrifying. The stress this person was under as a result of it was um, not any, like anything I'd seen before. Um, so this is a high, high level of dissociation when it moves into, these are offending behaviors now. And look, everybody in here probably drove by somebody's house once, right, when you were dating them? <laughs> <coughs> That's the seed, that's the germ of stalking. But it's when you do it once and you're like, okay, what am I doing? I'm out of my mind. Um, another thing when you like set up surveillance across the street, like rent a house. Um, I, I had a colleague actually who had a patient who rented, a, bought a house across the street from her. Can you imagine? <clears throat> Obsession and acting out of the plan. So now I have a plan of how I'm going to retaliate or go after this person. And now we're in the, you know, Glenn Close department here, <laughs> right? Um, and they repeat this cycle or they begin with a new partner. So if this works and these people are, you know, in this dance and it's sick enough, then um, the cycle begins all over again. There's a honeymoon phase, and now we're in this again. And people that are live in these marriages never leave each other, but they come into our offices, and they are ready to kill each other often. Um, it's their very tempestuous, high arousal. Um, they can be domestically violent at times also um, until they're just out of control. Um, and so you can see this is really how the cycle goes. And this is in Pia Melody's book, Facing Love Addiction. All right, so this is from um, Charlotte Castle's Five Criteria of an Addiction. So there are five common criteria for assessing an addictive relationship. The first one is um, powerlessness, to stop at will. So they're unable to end the relationship. So this person's been in your office for months, complaining, talking about why this isn't working, not sure if it's right or not, should I stay, should I go. Um, <coughs> you're watching their sense of self slip all over the place. That kind of powerlessness is a feature of this problem. Uh, there are harmful consequences to the relationship. So there's loss of job, loss of sleep, um, not spending time with friends, um, loss of family time also, because they've been consumed with this other person. And it's not going well. You know, when people, you have a client, and they've been seeing somebody for three months, and they want to come into couples therapy, that's a bad sign, right? That's when you break up. You don't go to couples therapy. It's not like you've been in a relationship for 13 years and you're coming to couples therapy okay, but three months? So these are the sort of things to be mindful of. Um, there's an unmanageability. 
to uh, in other areas of life, like neglecting other responsibilities because of the relationship. Um, and so people have messes in their lives when I think of unmanageability. This, of course, is a phrase right from Alcoholics Anonymous. And there's an escalation of involvement. So the obsession increases. And withdrawal when the relationship is removed or inhibited, like depression, anxiety, or irritability. So recently, there was an article just last week in Glamour magazine online about love addiction. And there were two women that were interviewed for it. And one of them said that she had to go through this withdrawal process um, whereby she had to stop everything. And it was the hardest thing she'd ever done. Stop seeing the guy. Um, stop going out with guys altogether. Stop masturbating. Stop dating you know, for at least a year before she could start to have a relationship with herself again. And the pain that she had to endure of the abject loneliness that went with stopping everything. And this is where both the sex and love addiction models get a bad rap because they're abstinence-based models. But they're not abstinence-based for the rest of your life. There's not some morality or religious um, idea behind it. It's mostly about if you're doing the same thing over and over again, why not stop and find out what happens when you don't do that thing? And if you stop long enough, you will get a sense of whether there's a mood disorder, where there's untreated or complex trauma, um, what the person's sense of self is or isn't, because it, it gives you as a clinician something to work with. But of course, the client has to really, really want to change what they're doing. They can't just do it half in and half out. So why is it um, useful to conceptualize this as an addiction? Well, there is tolerance and there is escalation. And even though this is an ongoing academic agreement about behavioral addictions, we see it clinically. Um, people will start to do things they never would have a, a million years thought they would do before. They're putting themselves in increasingly dangerous situations. Um, as I said, we had a young woman in our intensive once who was finding strange men, anonymous men in bars, to take her home to strangle her while they were having sex with her. Um, this was now super, super dangerous. Um, so her behaviors were escalating, and she was getting more and more checked out and tolerating more and more. That's a person who's setting themselves up for a gang rape or murder, right? Um, over time, there's more stimulus, risk, more intensity to achieve the desired effect. The behavior continues despite the negative consequences, and they need intervention and treatment to break the cycle. You cannot play around with this problem. You have to make a big, bold move um, otherwise, the person will just keep doing it. Yes? I was wondering if you see a higher percentage of undiagnosed ADHD. Um, I don't know about that. Like, I can't answer that statistically. We certainly see a fair amount of that in sex addicts. Um, so yeah, I would think that goes with, I mean, more and more ADHD is being looked at as a, an attachment disorder, you know, from early, early on. So if indeed you have someone who was neglected as an infant or had a mother who had attention difficulties, it's going to get embedded in the same way. Um, so addictive treatment in uh, addiction recovery model is in conjunction with education and trauma resolution work. So this is what assessment looks like. Uh, we have a detailed relationship and sexual history. Um, childhood exposure to messages about self and love, early relational and sexual experiences, what was positive, what was negative, 
family of origin information. And so we're doing an extensive amount of excavation here because we're looking for the early attachment and regulatory problems that would have had somebody get to where they are today so that it makes good sense why they're doing what they're doing now. It should be congruent and absolutely line up. Like, of course you would be doing what you're doing. Look what happened here. Um, look for early relational trauma in the first four years, later relational trauma um, of the abandonment rejection, as I was talking about, and learn to elicit the presenting problem in the most detailed, non-judgmental way you can. Because in the telling of the story, you're going to learn a lot about that person. And you have to, this is a, a current pet peeve of mine, is that we're all now trained in all these trauma modalities, and everybody wants to whip out their trauma modalities on day one. But you still have to build a relationship with people, and especially with someone who's been very, very damaged. It's got to go slow. And when you're eliciting these conversations and you're getting family of origin issue information or learning about somebody's childhood in detail, you are building regulatory structures in those moments. So the assessment process is the trauma therapy. Um, if you slow it down and if you're working from a interpersonal neurobiological perspective. So some of the tools um, are the love addiction screening test, which is on our, I think all of these are on our website. Um, there are 25 yes and no questions, and I distilled this from the 40 questions uh, from SLAA. So this is a much bigger questionnaire. Um, it's a profile of responses discriminates between addictive and non-addictive behaviors. So you ask questions like, do you ever get high from romance, fantasy, or intrigue? And the answer is, well, yes, we all do, but is this all you ever do? And if you want to understand more about that, read Helen Fisher's book, Why We Love. Do you replace ended relationships immediately? If so, why? How immediate? How long have you been doing that? And do you often feel an instant closeness with people you just met? Um, so there are the SLA 40 questions, the Betrayal Bond Index, which is in Carnes' book, The Betrayal Bond. Um, there are 30 yes-no questions, and also the Adverse Childhood Experience Test, which you can find online. There are 10 questions. If you answer one yes, you had adverse childhood experiences. That's how cleverly they designed and distilled this down. Um, so these are good ways of sussing out trauma. And then minimize the, uh, these are mistakes that therapists make, is they will often minimize the, uh, the intensity of the love addiction and um, they'll ignore it. Um, and they won't see how pervasive it is. And I've seen, you know, clients talk about how their therapist did this with their sex addiction also. Like, all guys look at porn and so what if you went to a bar and met someone that's normal? Because there's so much shame talking about these problems that unless we're really curious and we're loosely holding these ideas in the back of our head, it's not that we're out to colonize everyone as a behavioral addict, but just thinking, huh, I wonder, let me ask questions in that department or that area, then you won't minimize the problem. Um, and people will try to stop behaviors by way of willpower. Well, that's not possible. Um, or they'll address family of origin issues first because we all love to do psychodynamic work because it's juicy and it's alive and it's why we became therapists. So to avoid these mistakes, you want to address the most acute problems first. Um, and you want to use the relationship with the therapist to encourage change directly. So there's accountability, there's task work, 
Um, you sort of act as a temporary sponsor initially to say, we're in this together. How can I help you? What do you need from week to week? Um, how can I be a support structure along the way to help you create a community of concern around yourself so that you don't contact this person? Um, and I have also seen, like in our women's groups here, we have two female sex and love addiction groups here that we call women's intimacy groups here. And I've seen women come into those groups who weren't ready to give up their qualifiers. And they could be in those groups sometimes for six months. But as they're in the group with other women and they're talking about it, they start to see how bad that person really is for them. And unlike the males who we require to sort of stop everything from the get-go, um, they're different creatures. They come in, they're like, okay, I'm in trouble, tell me what to do, and I'll just stop doing it. <laughs> I, I'm not kidding. Whereas women, treating females is very different. You have to be in relationship with them. You have to kind of massage the situation. You have to help them come to their own um, decisions that this is not working for me and it's hurting me. So it's more actually of a harm reduction model initially, um, unless there's really egregious behaviors, like dangerous behaviors, I would intervene on those pretty rapidly. Uh, but if I had a female who had two or three guys, one in San Francisco, one in LA, and one in San Diego, and she had bad self-esteem, and she knows she's not really, things aren't going to work out with any of them, we might start, well, which one of them do you think you should let go first? And then it will will down to the one. And then eventually, she's going to come to that decision. If, however, she's engaging in these like anonymous sex, dangerous, drug-taking behaviors, I'm going to sit down and say, you're in trouble and you're scaring me. What are we going to do to help you stop doing this between now and next week, like one week at a time? So the addiction recovery model works nicely. There's behavioral addiction uh, uh, direction. Uh, we help people with alternative coping mechanisms in terms of, well, what can you replace these behaviors with that are healthy, consensual, relational, community-based? Um, DBT is often super helpful for those who are in the borderline spectrum. Um, of course, 12-step meetings, if people are amenable to them, we have a nice recovery community. Um, there are good SLA meetings in this city, both on the west side and in Hollywood. Um, we want accountability, um, psychoeducating. There's so many more books now for female sex and love addiction than there ever was before. Uh, really terrific books of women sharing their experience. Um, therapist is an active intervention source and problem solver. And we're, con we're confronting the denial because addictions thrive in contradiction. That's a statement from Patrick Carnes. And so you really have to hold up reality, like, wait a minute, you say you want a relationship, but then you're still hooking up with this guy, how's that going to work? Um, so you have to call out the reality because they live in fantasy. And fantasy is a dissociative structure. These are dissociative neural pathways that are well honed and healed from childhood. So we want to start to adaptively change those into being present. Um, reframing the client's perspective on relational interactions, so depersonalizing their interpretations, saying, wait a minute, is that really true? Was that person really angry at you? Or did you go into shame because it felt like the way your mother used to talk to you? Let's watch that constantly. How's that working with me? Do you feel shame by me when I tell you I don't think that's a good idea? So the therapist really has to use themselves in relationship with the women um, in a very, very deep way, so that it's a two-person system. 
And treatment is based, of course, in the here and now and one day at a time, because otherwise it's too overwhelming. It's just for today, can you not call this person? And can you call me instead? <coughs> so we identify the problematic relational behaviors. Um, there's usually a commitment made to abstain from the behaviors. There's greater engagement in relationships with, um, with uh, peers. Um, tolerating intimacy, cultivating empathy for the self, and I would add compassion also to that and to others, uh, because so many of these people have self-loathing issues because they were abused, whether they were bullied or sexually abused or emotionally abused or neglected. There's a lot of self-loathing here, and we are really working um, to clean that up and to create a solid sense of self. And when people start to have compassion and empathy for themselves, they start choosing better people. Um, defining and developing healthy sexuality, which is a whole process in and of itself. So some of that I've defined in making advances. It's certainly in erotic intelligence. Um, there's a dating plan in erotic intelligence. So each one of these bullet points can represent a month of therapy, right? These are big, big um, issues. So managing stress and emotional discomfort. So if necessary, medication compliance, antidepressants, mood stabilizers, um, and going. So where the mood stabilizers are concerned, I want to say that sometimes early intervention can be psychotropic medication, but it doesn't mean it's a life sentence. I've worked with people who've stayed on medication for a year or two, and through the therapeutic work, at some point they start to get off of it, and they're doing great because these SSRIs have fading qualities anyway, so they go away anyway. So if they're going away, if the medication is helping the person and the therapy starts to take the place of the medication, then you've got a nice mix there. Um, and then ongoing participation in self-care activities, which is crucial, making friends, taking walks, taking baths, having clean clothes, following through on your self-care appointments, all of that is about becoming a functional adult versus what Pia Melody would call an adapted child. Um, so we use the task-centered approach here, 30 days of celibacy, meetings, as I said. These are some of the early tasks where um, you define bottom-line behaviors, which is language from SLAA. Um, there are inventories like consequences, seductive and manipulative behaviors, secrets and lies. So all of this task work can be found in Carnes's book, Facing the Shadow. And you can use some of those or adapt them as you need. We work with multiple books here and multiple sources. And then finally, there is the trauma treatment, which is an essential part of people becoming integrated because they're disintegrated. So identifying the past relational traumas, the abandonment, rejection, and enmeshment. Um, you can use any number of all the modalities that are out there now from EMDR, SE, you know, TRIM, TRE, tra uh, the trauma egg we use here quite a bit. Um, and of course, all of the education reading assignments um, and things of that nature that help people. And sometimes clients come in with the own books that they've read or workshops they've gone to that they love. And the goals are to help her regulate her autonomic nervous system um, and increase her ability to recognize bodily cues to her emotions, 
to desensitize her habitual traumatic triggers and to reduce activation of the fight, flight, freeze response system, as well as to activate growth of the emotional regulation centers of her central <coughs> nervous system. So this is a tall order, and it takes time, and it takes a village. So it's individual therapy, it's 12-step, it's group, it's um, you know any kind of modality that will help her sort of become a member of society instead of just a sex object. Uh, and the sex and love addiction itself are traumatizing. So we can't forget that either, what people put themselves through. Um, and so again, here are some of the things that uh, treatment requires as I just laid out. Certainly shame reduction um, and making the acting out behaviors ego dystonic, ultimately. So here are some of the 12-step groups. Our, mo our best group in LA is SLAA. We don't really have Love Addicts Anonymous here. We do have CODA meetings. And Al-Anon is always great for boundaries. So you should be familiar with the 12-step um, groups in your area. And finally, here's some recommended reading. Um, Ready to Heal by Kelly McDaniel is the most current book on female sex and love addiction um, and relationship addictions. Um, Facing Love Addiction, of course, by Pia Melody. Stacey Sprout wrote this book, Naked in Public, which is a memoir about her own sex and love addiction. Um, I talked about Ethley's book, Carnes' Betrayal Bond. These are older books here. Is it love or is it addiction? And Women's Sex and Addiction is an oldie but goodie. And so finally, um, again, this book is a book that um, if you're working with female sex and love addicts, if you want to set up a female sex and love addiction group, um, anything you need to know about that population is in this book. So do you have any questions before we start?